This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Throughout the pandemic, the governing PCs at Queen's Park have continued to repeat a single refrain as we watched the devastation from COVID-19 in long-term care. Minister Marilee Fullerton's message focuses on the problems that resulted from decades of neglect that predate her and that she, as part of the Ford government, is fixing the system for the future. But are they? Ontario's financial accountability officer has released his review of the expenditure estimates by the Ministry of Long-Term Care and finds that the governing Tories will not meet the first half of their commitment to build 15,000 of 30,000 new LTC beds by 2023-24. It also finds that even if the 30,000 beds come on stream by the end of the decade, it will not be enough to meet growing demand from the aging population. On Wednesday, Libby was joined by Patricia Tomasi, daughter of a resident of long-term care where just 60% of staff have received a COVID vaccine, and the financial accountability officer himself, Peter Weltman. I think the thing that surprised me the most that in some cases we actually projected um, that the government would uh, spend less than the government is projecting. So <laughs> in one particular instance with regards to building the new beds. So the reason for that is that we think some of those beds will be delayed. So it's most of, mostly a timing thing. But no, really nothing is, is terribly, terribly new here. So the average annual growth rate of spending is 9.3%. That's, that's a lot, but not enough to do the things that the government has promised. So the 9.3 is is a very big number. Uh, in the last 10 years, government spending has been a roughly 3%, has, has increased by about 3% per year. And really what the 9.3% represents is two significant commitments that the government has made uh, between now and the end of the decade, one of which is to build, to add 30,000 new long-term care beds to the existing stock of about 70-odd thousand and to provide additional hours of care for each resident per day, going from about 2.75 hours per day of care to about four hours per day of care. So both of those two commitments really drive the significant increase in spending. Peter Weltman, what would you like to leave us with on this? That is the role of our elected representatives, is to question the government on their spending plans, ask them about you know, the feasibility of actually implementing or realizing some of the promises that, that they've put forward, such as the additional care, understanding you know, how that's going to get paid for. And I guess the other question, too, is, that it is, the, is it the right number? How do they know it's the right number? How do they know that four hours is the right number? I mean, we can tell you the four hours does translate to 29,000 people. That's, that's basic math. Um, but that is, you know, is that the right way? Are there other alternatives to delivering care to this age group that maybe is more effective or less costly, et cetera. So these are all great questions for MPPs to ask of the government, and they'll be starting tomorrow in committee. Patricia Tomasi joins me now. Hi, Patricia. 
Hi, I have some updated stats, too, as of last night about the home. Okay, go ahead. So 65% of staff members are fully vaccinated and 78% of staff have received their first dose. 96% of residents are fully vaccinated. So I received this information, and thank you so much for having me on the show um, just last night from the home. They're aiming for a 75% fully vaccinated staff. That's like their flu shot threshold. But I don't think we should be dealing with this same threshold for the flu as we do for the pandemic. There will continue to be COVID outbreaks so long as staff are not getting vaccinated, which means my mother and other long-term residents will continue to be isolated in their rooms unless public health changes that policy um, so that if even if there's a staff outbreak, that residents will not no longer have to be isolated in the rooms because they're fully vaccinated. I'm the designated caregiver is fully vaccinated, and hopefully they can. A public health will relax those rules then, if the Ford government will not condone mandatory vaccination. Something has to change. My mother's having delusions now. She's been alone for so long that she's now thinking that she's in another place and that. The PSWs have left her alone. She told me yesterday she wheeled to her door and stuck her head out in the hallway and said, where are you? I miss you. Like she's just having delusions of being alone this whole time. Uh, she hasn't touched or hugged her grandkids, my kids, in over a year. Like, this is ridiculous now. We're, we're touting the good news of the general population getting vaccinated. It's time to free long-term care residents and give them the quality of life and dignity that they deserve. Patricia Tomasi, daughter of a resident in long-term care and Ontario's financial accountability officer, Peter Weltman. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's been a challenging week for some 90,000 Ontario residents who received a first dose of AstraZeneca vaccine from March 10th to the 19th. They became eligible for a second shot of AstraZeneca at select pharmacies in Toronto, Kingston, and Windsor. But there was a delay in shipping thousands of these doses to about 100 pharmacies in Toronto, doses that expire at the end of day tomorrow. Fightback friend and pharmacist John Papasturgio owns Shoppers Drug Mart locations on the Danforth and did receive shipments of AstraZeneca. He spoke with Libby on Wednesday. Yeah, we got about a thousand uh, doses now. I, I mean, that's how fast things change. Uh, we don't always know exactly when we're going to get supply, but uh, we are in supply now. It's kind of a, a crazy environment here in the uh, in the pharmacy, and we've got many, many people calling the store uh, to see if they could get access to the vaccine. The way we're handling it right now is anyone that got their first doses with us here, we're, we're reaching out and booking appointments for them. And then based on the supply, we'll, we'll start giving it to others. But it, uh, it still is a relatively small amount given the number of patients we vaccinated initially, right? Yeah. I, I, how many patients did you vaccinate initially? It's, it's hard to say. I think at my store, it's probably, you know, over 3,000 patients. So we don't have it enough for everyone as of yet, but we'll get there. Uh, you know, I've been told we're, we're going to have access to more. So uh, hopefully over the next week or so, we'll be able to get to everyone. Presumably what you have now are uh, the doses that are going to expire on May the 31st. And those were 
redistributed by the province, right, to some of the pharmacists that gave them out initially. Yeah, exactly. It's not to all the pharmacies. There's select pharmacies in uh, Toronto, London, and Windsor. So I think that's some of the challenge right now. They're not, they haven't gone out to every single uh, pharmacy that was given initial doses, uh, but, uh, you know, a selected few. Okay, and, and presumably the ones that gave out a lot of shots, like, like your uh, pharmacy. I think so. I think that's the way they did it. Have you had a sense of hesitancy of people who don't want to take a second shot, or are you just overwhelmed with people who do? No, not right. I think I, you know, I actually was, I think at the initial, uh, the initial dose, I, I probably was fielding more questions around safety. I think uh, the people that are coming now are committed to getting fully vaccinated. I think uh, uh, they want their second dose, and the volume is, is there that at this point, any patient that's hesitant that they just get bumped with someone that actually wants the vaccine uh, because of the short supply. Uh, obviously, we do we do get questions around what it means, the safety. Is there any initial uh, increased risk with the second dose? And so far, the data doesn't suggest that. My understanding, which uh, is is that the optimal time for a second dose of AstraZeneca is. 12 weeks, that the people from the first tranche who are getting a second dose, they're sort of at 10 or 11, which probably doesn't make much of a difference. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, there was a paper that, you know, highlighted the evidence or the efficacy across different kind of timeframes. You know, as you approach that that 12-week period, uh, incrementally, uh, the protection is about 11% higher. So there is some added protection. Uh, you know, we don't really know what the variance is, uh, you know, a week off here and there. Uh, uh, the reality is, I think, because of the supply issues, because of the short dating, I encourage, you know, anyone that's a candidate, let's get it. Let's not worry too much about that that small variation, because I think the added benefit uh, definitely would outweigh the potential risk of getting COVID and, and becoming severely ill. What would you like to leave us with, John? Just, uh, you know, hang tight. Uh, you know, if you haven't fallen in that perspective, don't, you don't have to show up. Don't call the pharmacy. We, we literally can't handle the volume right now because we're dealing with so much. Uh, you know, I, hopefully in the next week we get to everyone. And the message I always uh, leave people with, please don't shop around for vaccines and timelines and this and that. If they call your number, get vaccinated. It's important to be vaccinated as early as possible. And hopefully we'll get through this mess uh, together. Fight Back, friend and pharmacist John Papasturgio. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, fighting back against condo construction all day, every day. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. How noisy is your neighborhood? If you've noticed an increase in the amount of construction sound here in Toronto and at all times of day, there is a good reason for that. What many Toronto residents might not know is that a recent provincial regulation has overridden the Toronto Noise Bylaw and allows for residential development construction activity between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. seven days a week. And this provincial override is in effect through the summer until October 7th. 
The issue was brought to our attention by our Zoomer radio colleague, Justin Eacock, who lives in the Bathurst and Eglinton area, which he says has turned into a hotbed of construction to the point that he and his partner don't know if they will be able to continue living there because of the noise, not to mention the dust. While filling in for Libby on Thursday, I was joined by two Toronto City councillors who are angry about this on behalf of their constituents. Josh Matlow represents Ward 12, Toronto St. Paul's, and Kristen Wong-Tam is councillor for Ward 13, Toronto Centre. Last April the 7th, the Ontario government brought forward uh, new regulations, uh, which essentially extended the uh, the noise permitted from construction sites uh, by the hours you've just mentioned, 6 a.m. to 7 p- uh, 10 p.m., seven days a week. Um, and it's important to note that the city of Toronto had just passed a new strengthened noise uh, bylaw uh, to accommodate for the update of, of, of noise construction, to, to mitigate uh, impacts to residents, and just to give people a, a quality of life that they deserve in the city. So we worked really hard to bring forward that new legislation, which actually strengthened the city's new new bylaw. We hadn't done that in a number of years. The bylaw review began in 2013, and with the stroke of a pen at the beginning of the pandemic, the provincial government basically handed over everything uh, to the development uh, and uh, construction lobby, and uh, we haven't been able to get them to undo it or to listen to local residents ever since. Councillor Matt Lowe, remind us of what the criteria of the noise bylaw, what it is in regular times. So in, in, in regular times, the city um, restricts uh, construction noise outside of the hours of 7 in the morning till 7 uh, in, in the evening during the weekdays, 9 in the morning till 7 on Saturdays. But then nothing on Saturdays and nothing on statutory holidays to give people a well-needed break. And uh, what the government has done, along with all the hours that you refer to, also allows it on statutory holidays. So in other words, as Kristen rightfully said, the, the development and construction industry lobby got everything that they have paid for for years. Uh, it, it just, it was, it, I think it was such a slap in the face to residents who were doing their part to stay home and stay safe. So, Councillor Wong Tam, what efforts have been made by Toronto City Council? You said you voted to urge the provincial government to retract this override. Are they literally at Queen's Park, uh, Doug Ford and his ministers, they're ignoring uh, all of your requests? That's what it appears to be, is that we haven't received any meaningful response. I, I would actually correct myself. We haven't received any response. Yes. Uh, personal communication that's come from myself, and I know other councillors have done the same, including Josh here. The only people that the government seems to be listening to, and they seem to have their ear in, and they are getting everything that they want, is the development and condo um, uh, uh, industry. Um, and so, you know, there is very little more we can do until this until this provincial government turns around. And I think, you know, residents have, get, get, have got to get really loud. They've got to be able to lobby different MPPs who actually sit in government and tell them that this is unacceptable. And it's not just affecting Toronto, of course. It's affecting all municipalities uh, across Ontario. You know, when it, when it comes down to it, uh, and Kristen said this so well, um, every thing that this government has done when it comes to Toronto has been in the interest of the development industry and everything that they've done has never been repealed or overturned or pulled back. 
But there is a history that the Ford government, when there has been enough public pushback, we've seen that in recent days with some of their pandemic responses, they will capitulate if they hear from enough people that it is unacceptable. And in other words, it's not in their political interest to proceed. And that's why I just want to echo Kristen, uh, and we can't reiterate this enough. The more that Torontonians contact their MPP, and in particular, if they have a Conservative MPP or if they contact uh, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and the Premier and say, get rid of these new noise bylaws, return Toronto's control, uh, it will make such a difference. But they won't do it if they don't hear from people. Toronto City Councillors Josh Matlow and Kristen Wong-Tam. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Thursday, we continued the discussion about noise and sound since the month of May is Better Hearing and Speech Month. Hearing loss affects about a million Canadians who are living and coping with this challenge. In fact, hearing loss is the third most common chronic disability after high blood pressure and arthritis. But there are ways to cope and live well. Dr. Andre Marcoux is vice president of audiology at Signia and joined me with some important information for Zoomers. We know from our surveys that um, the causes of hearing loss do vary. The most common would be um, those who are exposed to uh, to noise. So noise exposure can certainly uh, play a part in all of that. That would be the most common cause, followed by aging. Um, most people uh, above the age of 20 years old, so half of people over the age of 20, may have some form of, of hearing loss. So it, it's very insidious. It starts off very, um, very slowly. But with aging, we do see hearing loss creeping up. And then there can be other factors that are more medical uh, ear infections. There can also be some congenital um, factors behind hearing loss. How do you know if you are putting your hearing at risk? And uh, I'm assuming that's just too much loud noise too often. It certainly can be. So with noise, it's a question of dosage. So most people are aware of, well, if you listen to something that is too loud, that can cause some some damage. But even for noise levels or for sound levels that are lower, if you listen to that sound long enough, it can also have the same impact on your hearing. So it's always a question of how loud is the actual sound or noise? uh, And then for how long are you listening to that noise? So someone, for example, in the workplace who's around continuous noise levels uh, there, it is important there to wear to wear some hearing protection and to make sure that that they they do uh, manage it and 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 mitigate the uh, the effects of that noise on their on their hearing ability. Doctor, what are the signs and symptoms of hearing loss when you know that you should be booking an appointment with an audiologist? In many cases, hearing loss can manifest itself without the person even knowing. It is so gradual sometimes and uh, and so insidious that one should get a hearing test um, or should get a routine hearing test. Personal anecdote, this is how I discovered that I had hearing loss. Obviously, I'm in the field, so I had access to uh, to someone, one of my colleagues, testing my hearing. 
but I was, I was not showing any real signs that I had hearing loss. But lo and behold, my audiogram did show that I had a high-frequency hearing loss in both ears. Some of that might be due somewhat to a little bit of aging and also a little bit of, of, uh, of noise exposure. But no one in my surrounding would have noticed that I had hearing loss. With time, however, um, I am showing some of the more typical signs that people should look out for, which are um, oftentimes asking to repeat uh, television, for example, or, or conversations in quiet, just asking once in a while, could you repeat or what did they say? This is all the more obvious when there's a little bit of background noise. So if you add a little bit of competing sound or a competing noise, that's when it becomes uh, much more obvious that we're not completely understanding what someone is saying, and we will ask all the more often for uh, for someone to to repeat themselves. Another sign is potentially ringing in the ear, uh, which we call tinnitus, or some people pronounce it tinnitus, uh, which can oftentimes accompany hearing loss. So while we may have ringing in the ears without any hearing loss whatsoever, many times that ringing is accompanied by hearing loss. And uh, this is oftentimes the, 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 the reason why people consult. They'll go in and consult their audiologist or their, their medical doctor because they have ringing. And then they will discover after the fact that this is uh, accompanied by hearing loss. But I have to stress the importance of getting a hearing test uh, on a routine basis, even though you may not be sh displaying or showing these typical signs that are uh, that are that are common with hearing loss. Dr. Andre Marcoux, Vice President of Audiology at Signia. You'll find more information at signia.net. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Pat in Toronto phoned about the provincial override on Toronto's noise bylaw, which means condo construction may take place between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. seven days a week through October. My experience is slightly different, and that was with regard to a noise bylaw on a lake up in Muskoka. And I was on council, and there was great concern about putting in this noise bylaw. And uh, it had $500 fines if people were making too much noise. You know, all we had to do was put the bylaw in place, and the noise stopped immediately. Um, but I would comment that we have to do something about what the Ford government is doing. Uh, the environment, he is tearing the environment apart, and I've been part of a, a lawsuit which was heard, and we haven't had the decision yet, where they are simply ignoring any public input with regard to environmental concerns. You know, further to that comment that our former mayor was talking about with regard to uh, 
the highway. So uh, I think that's going to be a serious issue in the next uh, provincial election, or it should be. Jason in Toronto called about an erosion in government trust during the pandemic. This was a massive failure on behalf of the federal liberals and the provincial conservative government um, because this this was a national emergency that required a national response. But both were too far too concerned with scoring political points on each other, and that affected us, uh, us citizens, uh, in terms of our health, our businesses, our families, and that was that was a massive failure. Um, this required a national response. What we have is we're coming to an election, two elections coming up soon, and we can't be voting between two people who both failed us on a massive level. And that's kind of my point at this point. We can't be afraid. It's like, oh, we have to vote liberal because we're dealing about conservatives um, and they're going to screw up again. So we have to vote for them. So we need to really have some soul searching as, as citizens to see what happened. And this is a major issue. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who says the unrealistic cost of long-term care going forward should get us thinking about other ways of taking care of our older population. Given the magnitude of the cost that we're talking about, and also given the preference of many seniors, especially following what happened in the institutional care in the pandemic, uh, I'm wondering, I had wondered if any thought was given to um, home care alternatives, which is what more and more seniors want. Just to reiterate the point, it's, it's becoming increasingly clear, given the magnitude of costs associated with building an institutional care, that alternatives are going to need to be considered. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fight Back voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads. Idea City on the air and The Garden Show.